You're listening to the PMO Strategies Podcast, where PMO leaders become impact drivers. This is episode nine. Well, hey there, welcome back to the PMO Strategies Podcast. I am your host, Laura Bernard, and as always, I am honored and grateful that you are allowing me to spend a little bit of your day with you. This podcast episode is sponsored by the PMO Impact Summit, our free live virtual event that is specifically targeted to help PMO leaders around the world make a bigger impact with their PMO. Go check it out at PMOImpactSummit.com and get ready to learn a ton of ways you can make a big impact with your PMO. It's PMOImpactSummit.com and when the event is live, it is a free opportunity to get tons and tons of training to help you with your PMO. Today, I am honored and feel super privileged to bring to you Mark Price Perry, my very first PMO Strategies podcast guest. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm really happy that you invited me uh, to be the inaugural podcast. Thank you so much. So Mark is, if you don't know Mark, I don't know where you've been because if you're in the PMO space, Mark is the catalyst and the evangelist of the business-driven PMO. So he is a PMO management instructor and a PMO setup consultant. In 2002, after 20 years of general management experiences where he was a constituent served by a PMO or a business executive to whom the PMO function reported, Mark founded BOT International, a boutique consulting firm that helps organizations determine and achieve the purpose and value of their PMOs. And I think it's super important. And what I love about Mark's perspective is that it's from a consumer perspective or a stakeholder of the PMO as opposed to the PMO leader itself. And that's why he can provide so much great insight and different perspective that I think we as PMO leaders need. He's also the author of the Business Driven PMO three book series, which includes the Business Driven PMO Setup, Practical Insights, Techniques, and Case Study Examples for Ensuring Success, Business Driven Project Portfolio Management, Conquering the Top 10 Risks that Threaten Success, and Business Driven PMO Success Stories across industries and around the world. Based upon his books, Mark has conducted workshops on business-driven PMO setup in over 50 countries. That's right, five zero countries. Prior to BOT International, Mark had numerous PMO experiences over a 17-year career with IBM and as the Managing Director of Seville Systems Asia Pacific and Vice President of Entrust Greater China. Wow, you have had a lot of amazing experiences, and I hope we can dive into some of that today, Mark. I look forward to talking with you about some of those. So what I think is super interesting, Mark, and I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your experience and your perspective, uh, but what really sticks with me, and I've listened to your podcast, which we'll talk a little bit about today. I've listened to some of your online videos. I've also, now that we've gotten to know each other better, had the honor of sharing multiple stages with you. We've done PMO workshops together. We have shared the stage at conferences. You were, of course, a part of my PMO Impact Summit 
it last year and you are sharing a fantastic mind-blowing topic actually around business agility and the PMO in the summit this year. And I'm super, super excited about sharing you again with my audience as well as today. So with all of that said, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our PMO audience about you and your experience? Well, that was a very kind introduction that you gave me, Laura, so thank you. But you did say one particular word that I'd like to call out uh, and speak to just a little bit. You, you use the word stakeholder and mm -hmm. stakeholder in the context of a stakeholder perspective. And for me, that's really a watershed moment that I had in that for 20 years, mostly with IBM, but then a few years after IBM, I had been involved in program offices and project management offices, typically as a stakeholder or as one of the leadership team members served by the uh, office. And in the environments I was in, they were typically frontline environments that were seeking to achieve specific business objectives. And those program offices and project manager offices were set up and were instrumental in helping us achieve those objectives. Mm -hmm. But the way we set those up, and in my first 20 years of experience, they were always set up with a specific purpose in mind and a value of the office, a value of achieving that purpose, and specific measurements from which the office would be held to account. So the kind of two-step process was, okay, leadership team, we're gonna consider starting a project management office. Why? You know, what are we seeking to achieve? How do we codify that? Uh, and then based upon how much it's gonna cost to get this going investment, what's an assessment of the return? And hence that becomes a business case for the project management office. So that's the way you know, I'd learned from others for nearly 20 years. And these were business transformation project offices, change management project offices, marketing project office to launch new products to market, and on and on and on. So imagine my surprise when after 20 years of that kind of thinking and approach to the project management office around the 2000 timeframe, you know, I, I attended my first project management institute uh, event uh, in which the topic of PMOs was being presented and three presenters right in a row gave presentations talking about the purpose of the PMO was to establish standards for the management of projects or the purpose of the PMO is to coach and mentor and train and certify the project management staff or the purpose of the PMO is to be the body of people that manage projects such that project managers report to the PMO all in one place. And I kept thinking to myself, well, I don't disagree that these are all things that a project management office could do in terms of the means to the ends, but none of these things are the ends to be achieved, the purpose and value of the PMO. So right away, we had this issue that the way I looked at it was vastly different than the certified PMPs and members of PMI that was in this industry group that I happened to be attending. And I, during the breaks of the conference, went to several folks and shared my perspective. And the response was, well, you know, you're not a PMP. You're not a member of PMI. You really don't know what a PMO is. And bear in mind, I was a general manager of IBM and the general manager of IBM to whom their PMO reported. <laughs> so I, I shared with these folks, you know, I really think I do know what a project management office is. So at that point, I just had an epiphany, a watershed moment 
that, you know, people kind of take a means to the ends view of project management and the PMO specifically. And regrettably, I think that's probably one of the key reasons why so many PMOs struggle in the initial setup. It's not that you don't need people, processes, and tools, but in the rush to get those things going, oftentimes lost or not crafted in the first place was the leadership team's purpose in having the PMO, what they would commit to by way of investment and an expected return, and then using that to determine what you actually do. And it's yeah. just mind blowing to me that business people, whether you call them project managers and whether they have a certification or not, it's just mind blowing to me that any business person would take the position that, well, we'll just advance the means to the ends and you know, the ends to be achieved will find themselves. <laughs> you know? So that kind of started you know, my interest in addressing the elephant in the room. I gave a few presentations shortly thereafter that were you know, met with consternations. Uh, it was almost like I was persona non grata. And in fact, there was a couple of people that told me that though I didn't know it, I had been blackballed from participating in various events <laughs> because I was, quote, criticizing PMI. And I really wasn't criticizing PMI. I was complimenting them in what they're doing well and offering critique on you know, where there are issues. So that started, I guess, you know, my reputation as maybe being a boat rocker, a maverick. I kind of said, I'm not boat rocking a maverick. I'm just driven by business needs. I'm business driven. And then that spawned into a you know, kind of approach that I took in talking about the PMO, that are you business driven? Or are you driven by some other intention? And that led to numerous discussions, research, meetings with people that I learned a great deal from. After a little bit of encouragement, I wrote a three book series on that kind of topic and how it affects project management office setup, project portfolio management, how project people talk to business people. And I'd like to say that I have seen some improvement in the last 20 years in that I do believe that on average, PMOs are more business driven today than I saw 20 years ago. But having said that, we're talking about instead of 75% being non-business driven, it's maybe 60%. So there's, right. still a, there's still a ton of work to be done. And I would say if one were to do research on, let's say, new PMOs being set up, and uh, like I've done in the past, I would not be surprised if you really looked at how a new PMO was set up, that though there may be some discussion of the, the need for the PMO, that probably half the PMOs parked the business need and just rushed right into implementing a tool, rolling out a methodology, organizing the people of the PMO, uh, and maybe starting a training program of some kind and producing reports. And then six months later, it's like, let's go agile. We don't like this. <laughs> right, right. Because they spend so much time on that setup and the people process templates, tools kind of thing without actually creating any value because they didn't ask that critical question that you mentioned, which was why, why are we doing this PMO in the first place? And 
I think that's one of the things that really, when I found you, I felt like I had met a kindred spirit because my world's a little bit different in that I built my first PMO in 1999 and spent 15 years in the role of PMO leader. And I got to tell you, I wish I had access to you and all of your resources back then because in 1999, they weren't even, at least where I was working in the middle of the dot-com craziness, they weren't calling it a PMO. We just knew we needed to execute and deliver our projects faster and faster and everything was going digital and everything was going into this new internet online and we just had to speed up getting to that return for the investment. I mean, it's not like today where you can go Google how to set up a PMO and get 8 million results back. Back then, I couldn't find the resources and the tools and the and the training and the books. There just wasn't as much out there. And what I did find to your point, was stuff that PMI was putting out or I would attend PMI dinner meetings and presentations. And it was a lot about templates and tools and process and all of that. And when I tried that stuff, I was getting a lot of pushback and everyone was saying, you're taking too long. We just want to deliver. We just want to get things done. We want to see the projects realized. And so I had to learn the hard way. And eventually what I found was, when I stopped putting all that people process tool stuff first and started asking and getting answers to the real questions, which are, why are we here? What's the business problem we're solving? And what are the outcomes we're intending to achieve? Stop focusing so much on outputs, but focus on outcomes. Once I started doing that, the magic started happening, that the projects were getting delivered, higher return on investment, all of the things, the strategy was getting realized, all the things that a PMO is supposed to do really, once I started aligning with that, we started seeing some really great progress. And then fast forward 15 years later, I'm still, I was on the board of PMI chapters and I was attending countless PMI meetings. And this is not a PMI bashing session. I'm a huge supporter of PMI and actually speaking at the PMO symposium this year at PMI, because I believe the message of the way we're doing what we're doing needs to be out there. So what I kept hearing was the same old, same old, which was the PMI is set up to create process and tools and get people certified and that's that. And I just felt like that wasn't my experience. So it's interesting what you and I both kind of came across. We got there very different ways, but we both had the same experience, which was actually guys, you can talk about this stuff all day long, but I'm telling you from my experience and you were telling people from your experience that's not what a PMO is all about. A PMO is there to solve business problems. And like I say, impact driven, you say business driven. We're really talking about a different conversation than just setting up a bunch of tools and process. I think you're spot on. In fact, an evidence of that just two weeks ago, out of the blue, a CEO from a rather large financial services company in Europe called me out of the blue. I mean, first I, I thought it was a prank call. <laughs> uh, but he knew who I was somehow, uh, mm -hmm. maybe through the books or through some other mechanism or maybe through discussions with his PMO team. But the reason he called me was he said, you know, after introducing himself, he said, Mark, I'm calling you because I want to talk to an outsider about an issue I have. Mm. Said, well, sure. What, what's the issue? And he says, I've been in discussions with our PMO and they just don't have interest in pursuing what I want them to pursue. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought for a moment. <laughs> and I, I, where to start? Did you laugh? So, yeah, well, yeah, well, it's like, and, and he said, also, he said, and their view of what the PMO is is different than my view of what my, I want the PMO to be. Right. And he, said, and he said, so how do I handle this difference in view? 
And, and my first thought was, well, you mean besides firing everybody? Right, right. <laughs> and, and so that, that speaks to the point, what kind of project management profession or from PMI's perspective, what kind of organization produces the fruit of the tree that confronts a CEO and says, we don't want to do what you want to do and what you think a PMO is isn't what a PMO is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean the reality is the CEO had very specific project-related issues and opportunities that he would like an organization of some kind of dress. Is that not a PMO? Right. And right. to your point about the books that you read, I mean, I read some of those very same books. I, I probably read over 75 books as part of the research for my three book series. I mean, first, let me say all of the books had some merit in their own defined context. Having said that, because of the poor definition of the context, the books were very limited in value because uh, most of them would spend one chapter out of 10 a lightweight introduction chapter talking about, well, the purpose and need of a PMO. Then they'd spend nine chapters about how to do project related stuff. Yeah. But in my opinion, it's the other way around. 90% of the time, 90% of the chapters ought to be spent on what are the ways that you go about working with a leadership team to determine a unanimous consensus position on the purpose of the PMO. Because if you ask 10 leadership team members, and this has been my experience in my first 20 years, when we started PMOs, when we'd get 10 or 15 of us together, there'd be a vastly different point of view on what we wanted the PMO to do. So it would take us between five or six months to flush out and achieve a common unanimous consensus position on that which is in scope and out of scope by way of what we want to accomplish. And we used all kinds of management, servant leadership kinds of practices, facilitation kinds of practices, meeting techniques, discussion techniques, to be able to fight fair, to discuss rationally, to arrive at this tremendously important consensus position. Now compare and contrast that with what you see in the project management industry. There's no one talking about well, how do you get the leadership team to even talk about or agree what the purpose of the PMO is? You know, right. Well, that's, that's not the scope of the PMO. We just do the stuff. We just right. implement the tool. You know, and to me, that misses the whole point. The value and the most important aspect of starting a PMO is that determination of what's the purpose. And then based upon that, how do we craft the most appropriate means to the ends. And you know, for one organization, sure, that might be implementing a tool and starting a methodology. For an organization, for another organization, there may not be a need for a tool or a methodology. Right. Right. You know? but, but you wouldn't know until you first define the problem. So, so again, I think it's a lot better now than it was, but it's far from where it should be. Right. Oh my gosh. And that's ultimately what I realized as I was going to these events and I was talking to people and they were saying, well, you know, the, it needs to be this certain way and that's the only way, or we've got to find, define the types, et cetera. Once I started seeing all that, and that just wasn't the experience I was having when I was successful in organizations as a PMO leader, I really felt this burning need to share that with everyone and say, hold on, there's a better way. We've got to get out of this mindset of survival skills. If a PMO needs survival skills, then the PMO is not delivering business value period. And that was so important to me when I started seeing all of these things on online and in sessions where it was just like, here's how you survive or here's how you sell the PMO and all of that. And I thought, wait a minute. Okay. So if that's what people are focused on, where is the conversation 
or the conversation was really getting lost around why are we here? What's the business problem we're solving? What are the outcomes we're trying to achieve? The ends that we're trying to achieve. And I just felt this burning desire to go change that. So that's why I started my company, PMO Strategies, similar to what your experience was, was like, I have to go help people and show them that there's a better way. And now fast forward six years later, I've listened to tons of your podcast episodes. I, we're now in our second year of the PMO Impact Summit, where we bring together the top thought leaders from around the world to talk about what it really takes to build and run a PMO that is driving impact. And you and I have done some workshops together. We're on this mission, I would say, with a group of our colleagues to just change the perspective of the PMO and help people understand that they don't need survival skills. They don't need to sell the PMO. They don't need to do all of those things if they just focus on what is the outcome we're trying to achieve, not how many outputs we can create. By the way, guys, value is not determined by the number of outputs you create or the number of pages in your project management plan. Value is determined by the impact you're making on the organization, how you're helping the organization achieve ROI. And all of that, as you and I know, we could just go on forever about that, but all of that passion and energy, I think you and I shared in wanting to help get the message out there that there's a better way. Well, and you use two words that's very fitting for this podcast, and that's called passion and energy. <laughs> uh, you know, as, as you know, you know, I really have uh, had a lot of passion and energy for the, the PMO domain. You know, I've been at this for nearly 40 years, the first mm -hmm. 20 as a, uh, I guess, a stakeholder, and then the last 20 as helping others. But I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, kind of up there in age. Um, I'm probably a couple of decades older than you, and I'm getting pretty close to that magical line of, I just don't give a <laughs> anymore. <laughs> and what I mean about that is, I, I really do care, but I've contributed a great deal now, and I'm kind of at a point where there are some very specific niche areas uh, that I am uh, at this stage in my professional life, trying to steer my passions and energy to a couple of niche areas. But in terms of taking on this mantle, this mantra, and trying to weigh in uh, and have an effect on the project management industry, the profession, uh, having organizations you know, sort of get this order right. Uh, first, we determine the purpose, then we do the means, the ends. If I can say that we went from 75% PMOs that were struggling 20 years ago to maybe 65% now, yeah, I, I think that there's going to be a new team of people that are highly passionate, highly energetic, that will drive that 65% down to maybe 33% in the next 10 or 20 years. And that's going to be people like you that are young and vibrant and full of energy and full of passion that have done a lot already and have a lot more to give versus some of the folks like me, people say, well, you know, Mark, you're one of those gray heads. And I say, well, I'm not really a gray head. I don't have any hair on my head. <laughs> I would like to be a gray head. So, so I'm terribly enthusiastic and passionate and care, but there is just sort of a, a limit to, you know, based upon the time in the saddle and time left in the saddle, I'm really spending more of my time trying to, I hate to use the word pass the torch because it's really presumptive to me to even suggest I carry a torch, but I'm, I'm more interested in helping the sort of new generation with their next 20 years and, and sort of being behind the scenes. So there's a couple of folks that I think are current stars. They're going to be even more better future stars. And you are right at the top of the list. And I'm delighted that you're going to be doing some PMO podcasting. And uh, I am confident that 
with your leadership and a few others like you that the PMO domain will see further improvement in the next uh, couple of decades. Wow, Mark, thank you so much. It's just an honor to be able to work with you at all. And I'm just so humbled by your words and your kindness. Thank you. There's a lot of work to do still, but if it weren't, wasn't for people like you that had been, I would say, carrying a torch, being the evangelist for business-driven PMO, um, we wouldn't be where we are. I think that you've changed so many mindsets, so many more than you probably realize. I know that I really enjoyed listening to your podcast. It's still out there. It's called the PMO Podcast. It's fantastic, guys, if you guys want to go listen to Mark's content. And then, of course, we're going to continue to bring you content with this PMO Strategies Podcast and keep that positive and forward-thinking and business-driven, impact-driven focus with PMOs going forward. All right. So, Mark, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the session that you're going to be doing for the summit. So thank you for coming back again this year and doing the summit. Last year, for those of you that are listening that did not check out the PMO Impact Summit last year, you do have the option when you go to the PMO Impact Summit website to grab both last year's content and this year's content. So definitely check that if you're interested in seeing Mark's content from last year, which was all about a business-driven PMO and really critical to kind of shift your mindset around the PMO. This year, you're talking about nudging organizational change and business agility and the emerging role and new opportunity for business-driven PMOs. Now, I don't want to give away everything. So definitely, if you were interested in listening to and watching Mark's session, I've already seen the content. It's phenomenal. So if you're interested in that, make sure you go to PMOimpactsummit.com and register. But Mark, I'd love if you can just kind of broad strokes talk big picture about what this nudging concept is and how it relates to organizational change, business agility, and maybe even just help connect the dots for PMO leaders listening about how they could participate in this new way of driving change and being business agile. Sure, I'll be happy to touch up some of the highlights. You know, first, many people advocate that it's the formal projects that bring about a change, mm-hmm. uh, but it's oftentimes the informal projects throughout the business that sustain the change. So right off the bat, we have a mindset of, as a PMO, whether we're a business transformation PMO, a change management PMO, or an enterprise PMO, we have our formal projects we're working on each and every day, great. Mm-hmm. But there's a complete set of organizational-wide projects that the PMO doesn't necessarily need to know about or be involved with, but they exist. Mm-hmm. And in fact, not only do they exist, like I just mentioned, they're tremendously important and they sustain, often, they sustain the change desired behavior of those formal projects. So that's one premise. Now enter the world of complex adaptive systems, nudge theory, behavioral economics. A decade ago, more than a decade ago, a gentleman, an economist, won the Nobel Prize for his work in nudge theory. And the premise of nudge theory is really kind of interesting. The premise of nudge theory is that a nudge influences a choice, but nudges in themselves aren't mandatory. You know, so the, the person that's nudged doesn't have to accept it, and there's no penalty for ignoring it. But the nudge is intended to make something better, to facilitate a change behavior for the better, mm-hmm. uh, and, and hence nudges are voluntary. So, so the, the example I like to give is putting apple slices at eye level in the school cafeteria is a nudge. Mm. 
banning French fries isn't. <laughs> right, that's forced. That's forced. That's forced. So, so we don't change the choice architecture, but we take actions to, in essence, change the choice and thereby the outcome. And mm -hmm. this has tremendous impact, so much so that, you know, gosh, over a decade ago, David Cameron in the UK, President Obama in the United States and Australian government, they started standing up these behavioral insights teams or behavioral economics teams or nudge units for the purposes of saying, we can't just do a program and expect the world to change. We have to introduce nudges. A good business example would be new employees oftentimes will get asked, do you want to contribute to a tax deferred savings program? So that, you know, just asking the question is a nudge, but better yet on the form for the new employee, maybe say, what contribution to tax deferred savings would you like to make? And then underneath, it's actually quite important, the order. You know? uh, and there's been research done, a most notable study, one in Germany and one in France, where they took a look at the contributions. And in Germany, they did the reverse order. The contributions was like five, four, three, two, and 1%, or, or mm -hmm. don't, do not participate. Mm -hmm. In France, it was the reverse. It was do not participate, or one, two, three, four, five percent 5%. And guess what? As, as mm. part of nudge theory and default theory, it turns out that it's really important how you nudge and what comes first. So in Germany, where the first choice was 5%, they had a three times greater incidence of people choosing that, as opposed to in France, where the first choice was do not participate, three times the number of people chose that. So that's a really wow. good example is you, you don't fail to make the employee aware that there's a participation program. Two, you do not let it be binary. Three, you do not just arbitrarily put out the contribution amounts, but you plan those and present them in a way, again, apple slices at eye level, you know, so that you nudge right. the behavior you want. So this is something that more and more organizations are adopting these nudge units to root out ineffective practices that stifle the desired change behavior. Mm -hmm. and, and just think about how a PMO can help because first on the business side where these units are existing, they are in essence PMOs. I mean, what they do are nudge projects, but just think about internal to the PMO. I always work with PMOs and suggest that, hey, in your business case documents, your project charge, your project status reports, it's not good enough to show in a vacuum alone project data points like the project budget. Mm. Rather, you should show not only the project budget, but what is the stakeholder willingness to spend for that project? Because it's really important if the budget's a million dollars and the ultimate benefit is hundreds of million dollars over how many years, what would the stakeholder actually pay to do the project in the first place? If the stakeholder would be willing to pay $5 million for a project only cost a million dollars, that's really good to know. And that can set some expectations about how we mitigate risks. Conversely, if the stakeholder only has the ability to pay a million dollars on a million dollar budget, that's also good to know. And that would greatly change the way we mitigate risks. So not knowing that information is almost negligence. It's almost, uh, you know, they have terms for that uh, that are not very favorable, uh, like gross misconduct. So, so not only is it important to know that information, it's important to institutionalize it. So now think about a project charter where not only do you ask, hey, the budget is a million dollars, what are you willing to pay? How about you tee up some default choices? You're willing to pay five times more than the budget. You're willing to pay four times more than the budget. You're willing to pay three times more than the budget. You're willing to pay only the budget amount. Right. Wouldn't that be great to know up front? And I always get asked by those that are skeptical, I say, well, we can't ask that information. But that's exactly what you talk about when the project's in the ditch. Right. So my point is, 
if you want to change the behavior of focusing on the value of the project, what the stakeholder would be willing to pay versus just the budget, introduce a nudge. Yeah. So, now, so now think of all of the process outputs you know, that could be upgraded to introduce nudges to better reflect the type of behaviors you want so we don't have the misguided view that the purpose of the project, the purpose of project management is to deliver the project on time and on budget. But we have the proper view that the purpose of project management is to deliver the project, apply project management techniques that are most appropriate for the project at hand. Because you might have one project where the stakeholder tells the project manager, I want to have this as soon as possible. I want you to schedule this so aggressively that you can't possibly meet any deadline, but I want to squeeze out any possible dead space. So you might have a six month project that the stakeholder says, schedule it in four months uh, and you'll probably finish in five, but I'm okay. Right. So schedule in four and they're late a month. Is that worse than scheduling in six and finishing in six? So, so that's where this whole idea of nudge theory comes into play and in that the answer isn't, to rewrite from scratch or recreate how we do things from scratch, but to root out those practices and behaviors that don't support the desired change behavior by way of using nudges that bring about the change behavior. Wow, that's really interesting. And you can see how that would apply. My mind's already spinning of all the ways that that would apply at the PMO level when you're having PMO conversations, setting up a PMO, and of course, across your projects. But it sounds like I can almost hear what I refer to as the yeah, but monster that sometimes get in, gets into our PMO leaders' heads that are listening today and they'll say, yeah, but that won't work here. Or yeah, but we can't ask those questions. Or yeah, but, and a lot of that resistance, I think, comes because maybe they haven't taken the time to build that trusted advisor relationship. So they can't have very honest conversations because it sounds like the questions you would need to ask or kind of the areas you'd want to focus or how you were nudging would require there to be some trust built in between the stakeholders, sponsors, et cetera, uh, that are part of the PMO and the projects. Well, that's not wrong. But, but again, it gets back to impact or business driven right the whole idea is if we're focused on that what we want to accomplish then it really becomes a discussion of what are the means to the ends right yeah and and i think most people would agree or maybe i should say it the other way few people would defend the notion that big design up front plan driven scientific management is the only way to go right <laughs> uh, right most people recognize that you know we need adaptive and agile approaches we need to embrace complex adaptive systems we need to uh, be open about new ways to improve how we go about achieving the project outcomes, uh, the business outcomes that we, we want to have. I think the problem comes about trust is lost when there is not a focus on outcomes, but rather too much focus on process and outputs. It's like, I don't trust you because you're not talking my language. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. I have no ability to see how your output produces my outcome. So, so I think that's the magic pixie dust that connects the dots and builds trust is that there is trust that the output, that the effort will produce the outcome or the result. And that all starts by first understanding the results intended. And then secondly, and that's kind of the context of the presentation, to maybe being a little bit open to a different mindset, a broader mindset about how PMOs today can be of value to leadership teams in addressing the project-related business issues that they have. 
Right, right. Oh my gosh, yes. And so there's a really simple framework, and I think you saw this when we were doing one of our workshops together, um, to kind of help PMO leaders have the right conversations. Uh, but this also applies to project managers as well when they're talking about their projects of getting to that outcome and that impact focus. I say you've got to start with the business problem or business opportunity, the pain point or the ask, the why. You know, what is it that we're trying to accomplish here? Then connect that to the service, the solution, the perspective, whatever it is that you're trying to illustrate will solve that pain point or address that opportunity. And then you talk about the outcome that that will create. So what happens is a lot of times, even if they are asking, for example, what's the pain point that we're addressing, they'll talk about, okay, well, here's our service to do that. And they stop there. And they focus on that PM and PMO speak and they keep saying, well, we're going to do this. Well, we're going to put this in place. Or we're going to put that in place. And they eyes start glazing over their stakeholders because you haven't done the critical next step, which is say, here's the outcome we will achieve and the impact that will have on the organization. So I think that's where even if they are asking those right assessment questions up front, they kind of then answer with a lot of PM speak and nobody understands what they're talking about. And it's not until you get past that, you almost need to just hardly even talk about that. You shouldn't be talking about service or the solution. You've got to focus on here's how it connects to the outcome you're going to see and the impact that'll have on the project, on the organization, on this portfolio, whatever that is. So I think there's drawing those connections, you know, as you were talking about, they were focused too much on the PM speak. If we draw those connections and make it all about that why and the end, to be achieved, then you're speaking their language. They're going to understand you. And that's where that trust starts to get built. I think you're exactly right. I often share with leadership teams I work with that there's really two key steps. First step is determining, you know, the end to be achieved. And that's a leadership team call. That's not a PMO manager call. That's, that's on them. Right. And, and then the second step is to once they've determined what they want to have achieved, then the PMO takes the initiative to develop the PMO business plan to provide them, subject to their approval, the means to the ends. But before that two-step process takes place, there's a what I call a sub-zero or a, an ante that must be paid. And that is the leadership team must first establish what is the approach, the process or the activity? What is the approach that we as a leadership team plan to take for getting to the why? Yeah, many people have the assumptive why. Well, I spoke to the boss, so we now assume the whole organization agrees. No, that's not true. So before, when I work with PMOs, before we do step one or step two, I sit down with them and say, in your organization, how do you go about determining this? And usually half the time, there is a pretty good process. And I suggest to them, well, why not apply the exact same process to the PMO? And then there's the proverbial deer in the headlights look, well, why aren't we doing that? We, you know, we, why don't we subject the PMO to the same planning that we do for every other unit uh, right. in, in the organization? And then sometimes there's not. And when that's the case, you know, I, I'm, I'm delighted to say, hey, you make the call, but here are the top three uh, facilitation techniques that I see being used by organizations, leadership teams to arrive at a vetted, aired out and mutually agreed to and ready to go mandate. Only then, then we can do the, okay, let's get the PMO started by way of the two-step process. 
Right, right, exactly, exactly. And I really uh, like that kind of sub-zero or the before we even start kind of perspective because oftentimes when I go in and work with organizations that want to implement a PMO or build more of a project management culture, uh, they're so anxious to get started. And what I find that is really funny is a lot of times it's the PMO leaders that want to start doing before they even plan. And I say, hold on a second. I think you need to take a little bit of your own medicine and figure out why we're here, what we're doing, and how we're going to get to that outcome first. And so understanding how your organization does this process of peeling back the layers to get to the true why I think is really important because you have a really good point. A lot of times it'll be, well, so-and-so said we have to set up a PMO. Okay, we're off and running. No, that's not the why. And I'm always telling my students, if you are using sponsor said in any of your language, then you are completely diminishing your role, your authority, and your ability to contribute to getting to those outcomes. It's never about sponsor said. It's really peeling back those layers of why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing in the first place, and connecting that to the solutions that we're going to provide. So really investing the time up front to go through that process of peeling back the layers to get to the real why, I think is such an important step. And I'm so glad you brought that up here today. Well, let me offer your listeners a aha moment. And that is, I'm going to ask listeners a question. How long do you think you should allow for the leadership team to arrive at the purpose of the PMO? Mm. A couple of weeks, a couple of months. So form an initial reaction. And let me tell you what my experiences have been. When I work with leadership teams, and we have a formal program called PMO Nimawashu, where we sit down with the leadership teams, we meet with them individually to discuss what they want from the PMO. Mm -hmm. Then we meet as a group to vet out and debate and argue what the group wants. And then we have a, a number of group meetings, as, as many as it takes, to until such time as we arrive at a leadership team consensus position that everyone raises their hand and says, I agree to this, I agree to the purpose, I agree to the value, and now we're ready to have the PMO do the plan. When we do this work with leadership teams, on average, it takes us five to six months. Wow. Every now and then we can do it in three months. Every now and then it takes nine months, but on an average it's five to six months. But here's the kick. Whether it's three months, five to six or nine months, not once in all of my work with leadership teams has there been a complaint about the time expended. And in fact, always, because you, most of what I do is being called in to work with PMOs that already existed or struggling. And almost always leadership team says, you know, it's regrettable we didn't do this in our first go of the PMO, because if we did, we probably wouldn't have fired that PMO manager and had that bad experience for six months to 12 months. So right. not only do the leadership team have no problem with the time it takes, it recognizes that this work should be done or else the PMO is at risk. And the complexity of the situation at hand is what's going to determine whether the work can be done in three months or nine months. If there's vast disagreement on the purpose of the PMO, you're not ready to get things going. You might need nine months to ferret out that what you want the PMO to do. I mean, right. you can't start a PMO, implement a PPM tool, a methodology that's plan-driven, and then nine months later say, well, you know, we want to go agile. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. so it, it's, just, it's just ridiculous to think that you would do it. It's malpractice for the industry to be doing it that way. Yet, you know, 20 years ago, 75% of the organization did it that way. At present, it's probably 60%. So that's, right. that's the challenge we have at hand. And it's not a leadership team issue. 
I mean, it is in the sense that they're complicit if they allow a PMO to have a bad go of it, but it's really a PMO industry and project management professional issue in that these people come to these organizational positions thinking that I'm the PMO manager, I got to get things up and going, uh, and I need to be, have the PMO completely set up and showing results within the first three to six months. Right. Compare and contrast that with my experiences would have been, hey, in the first three to six months, you're not ready to start the PMO. Right. You have you haven't you haven't codified that which the PMO is to accomplish. And if you haven't codified the end, you can't advance the means. Wow. So that's really important perspective for all of you listening today when you're thinking about starting up or hitting the reset button or just doing a refresh or trying to take on your next set of capabilities. I think at every one of those transition points, you need to kind of do this work to level set because I can imagine, let's say you've had a PMO that's in place for a few years, but you know, you're getting the threat of we're just going to go all agile because the PMO isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Or, you know, you start hearing that you're not delivering. If you start seeing people run the other way when the PMO is coming, (laughs) then you know you're doing it wrong, right? So if you're in a place where you're trying to hit the reset button on the PMO, that's an incredible opportunity to do this work. And so this doesn't just apply if it's the first setup of the PMO, you can use this as an opportunity to reset everybody and to re-engage and to get that stakeholder engagement agreement and buy-in because you're doing the work with them, not to them, to determine what the PMO should do, what that why is, what the ends are that we need to achieve, et cetera. So this is a really important step that I think people probably underestimate and underestimate the importance of and the time that it takes, the investment it takes just to get that part right. And more to the point, having a good set of skills and getting that right makes a PMO manager worth their weight in gold. Mm-hmm. And, not having the, and not having those skills uh, really puts the PMO manager at risk of committing malpractice. Yeah, and that's a pretty strong word, but I think a pretty important one, saying malpractice, because that's what I'm always saying is, you know, if you're, you need to think of yourself as a fiduciary to the organization. And if you aren't ensuring that those investments are being managed as effectively as possible, then, you know, then, then you're not doing your fiduciary responsibility to the organization. It's all, you know, pretty serious when we think about it. And if you have ever felt like your PMO or your career could be on the chopping block next budget season, then you might want to take a look at maybe there are reasons for that that you can address. The answers are here, but it's really about getting that focus on the why, the business outcomes to be achieved, and investing the time and energy to do the work, to engage with those stakeholders, even the ones you don't want to engage with, to dig in and understand the purpose of the PMO and have everybody in agreement on that. That's fantastic, Mark. Thank you. So you also talk a little bit about business agility. And for those that are new to that concept, we're not talking about agile methodology here. We're talking about business agility. What is that for our audience today? And how does the PMO need to shift kind of how they operate to be more business agile? Well, that's a good question. And it kind of gets back to what we were discussing before about determining the leadership team purpose, because a lot of times different organizations, different businesses have different degrees of agility uh, that they're interested in or can take on. So, so I, I think the high level view of business agility is, is one that sort of corresponds to and complements that which we see with change management in that uh, much like in change management, you had the pre-1990s era, the 1990s era, 2000s and present, 
so it is the same for business agility, where pre-1990s, uh, there was interest in alternative uh, approaches to scientific management, you know, Taylorism in the PMO context in the 1990s uh, or in the IT context, rapid application development became the working vernacular where we wanted to get solutions out as quickly as possible so that we could affect business changes as quickly as possible. Contributing toward that a little bit in the 2000 era, you know, we had the Agile Manifesto that came out, you know, primarily uh, in terms of the software development uh, domain, but it really generated a movement that uh, as has formalized itself as a discipline and not just for software development, but uh, more broadly as business agility. And now we have increased, you know, professional development and organization, make organizational maturity that people are trying to seek with business agility. You know, when you talk to CEOs, that's all they talk about. You know, they, yeah. they have a, they have an agile transformation to achieve business agility. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, what that means is we, it, it's all about time and priorities uh, and, and of course, there's techniques, you know, so based upon time and priorities, different types of business management techniques are better aligned to achieving that which needs to be accomplished. From my perspective and from the perspective of what I would call the modern day PMO, business agility really involves sort of a shift in the mindset that we can no longer have the non-agile perspective with respect to projects and PMOs that Projects change the business and, and business operations runs the business. Right. That's, too, that's too binary. That's too, you know, do a project to change a business and then uh, that will be assumed in operations and the benefit carries on and we're happy. And if we need another change, that, that's just not really the way it is. You know, we have ongoing projects as part of changing the business, but we also have ongoing projects as part of sustaining the change, as part of running the business and part of reacting to the business. You know, think about business agility in terms of the issues that business executives face. Think about the business agility when Volkswagen was caught violating emission standards and cheating about it. Uh, the business agility when Wells Fargo you know, committed financial fraud uh, to achieve revenue objectives where they would create fictional accounts and basically had financial fraud. Think about the business agility when a company like Talking Rain uh, that comes out with a good tasting zero calorie fizzy drink uh, yeah. diet soda and they go from a 50 million dollar company to a 100 million to a 250 million to a 500 million to a billion dollar company in the span of four and five years and aside from their leadership team winning every possible award think of the agility that they need to sustain that change think of the agility that a coca-cola or a pepsi must now consider in response to you can just imagine their meetings. You know, why is it that they're losing share in the diet soda market right. while others are gaining share in the zero calorie fizzy drink that tastes good market? A zero calorie fizzy drink is a diet soda. You know? Right. So, so business agility is about response. It's about reacting. It's about running as you change. And it's just a different mindset that is needed than the old traditional mindset that projects and portfolios will change the business and then uh, the business is run by operations as if on autopilot. So that to me is the prize. That's what the eye of the prize is all about in terms of business agility. And it really requires today's PMOs and project management professionals to get out of the solo view that project management is an activity that's applied to a formal project of an organization by which a plan-driven approach is going to be adhered to. 
-hmm. that really only addresses one of four landscapes of organizational wide project management that drives business agility. You know, so, so it's really about addressing the fact that we have different types of techniques for managing project related work, techniques that are birthed in scientific management, uh, plan driven project management like PMBOK aligned and PRINCE2 kinds of things, but also techniques that are more patterned after the principles of complex adaptive systems. So, so that's two dimensions. And then the other two dimensions are the type of projects are not just changing the business, but the informal projects to sustain, run, and react to the business. So that really creates a two-by-two two fitness landscape of organizational-wide project management that traditional PMOs, quite frankly, are like an ostrich with their head in the sand, only play in one of four of those quadrants, yet with the movement to agile, with the movement to business agility, increasingly leadership teams well, like that call from the European CEO that said, this is what I want my PMO to do. They don't want to do it, though. Increasingly, leadership teams are dragging the PMO into a broader view of business agility. It's a pity it's not the other way around. It's a pity that the Industry Association for Project Management, PMI, isn't leading. But in fairness to PMI, I think it would be a mischaracterization to suggest that industry associations like PMI lead what will become future standards. Rather, to me, they substantiate that which has become a standard and make it more ubiquitously adoptable by way of a certification standard. So it's not meant to be a slight to PMI that you know the traditional view is, is still kind of binary, but it would be a great opportunity for leadership from someone to address the issue that we really do have a multitude of techniques, not just plan driven, and we do have a multitude of kinds of projects, not just formal change projects. And since we both know that it's not going to be the PMIs of the world that provide the industry leadership toward this, it's really going to be the passionate practitioners that uh, invest their time and passion to bring these views that already exist, but to really structure them in a way so that they can be better understood and acted upon. Hence, over to you, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it's got to be a practice before it can be a best practice, right? So Absolutely. You've got to have people out there that are practitioners, that are putting these things in place, that are proving out that what works and that certain practices are best practices. And then I think it's lovely that PMI can come in and say, okay, here's what the industry's telling us. Here is the best of these practices and how they move you forward to managing projects, managing portfolios, you know, implementing agile projects, et cetera. So I think it's all, I think you're right on there. And I think that's actually the intent, right? We've got to know something works before we start telling people to get certified in it. Absolutely. So this has been fantastic, Mark. There's so many things. You and I have talked for hours and hours about all these topics, and there's so much more we could talk about. So I'm definitely going to have to have you back on a future episode because I think there's a lot of things we haven't talked about here that I think are additionally important topics that we need to cover with our PMO, business-driven, impact-driven audience of what I call my impact drivers out there. So thank you for this initial episode. Are there any parting words or advice that you have for PMO leaders today in 
you know, kind of where to get started. Of course, they should go watch your episode of the PMO Impact Summit as soon as it's live. And you guys can get to that at PMOImpactSummit.com. But right now, right today, what is the one thing they could do differently or how they could start thinking differently to shift the way that their PMO is operating to be more business agile or business nimble and think about how they can start driving some organizational change more effectively? Well, if I can, you know, quote you, <laughs> uh, start with why. If you, yeah. just, if you just start with why and you're focused on outcomes, you will find plenty of outputs and plenty of things to uh, you know, turn your attention to. But, but again, I, I would just always try to make sure that we're not trying to do what we think should be done. Yes. Rather, we are seeking to do that which the leadership team wants us to do and achieve. And you know, sometimes it's really important to just take a candid assessment. You can't always change everything immediately or move the battleship, but you really ought to be able to look in the mirror and say, am I fundamentally going about this the right way? Uh, am, I, am I putting the PMO in a position to truly achieve the outcomes that the leadership team has an expectation? Or is the PMO at risk? Or do I not even know what the leadership team wants? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So, so, and, and a good example is, like you mentioned, if you're, if you're having to sell the leadership team on why the PMO should be there, and if you're trying to sell the leadership team on value, you're already many steps going down the wrong path. Right. Uh, your job isn't to sell the leadership team the value of the PMO. Your job is to listen, have them tell you that which they want to accomplish. Have them tell you their assessment of value. Your value is to facilitate that discussion and make it happen, not to throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. And if you can do that, you will be a highly successful project management office manager and probably a highly successful business manager. If you can't do that, you might succeed, but you're putting the PMO at risk. Yes. Oh, that's perfect. Well, with that, everybody, just want to say thank you for being a part of our show today. Mark, thank you so much for being my first guest on the PMO Strategies podcast and for sharing your experience, your expertise, and maybe passing the torch, if you will, because as far as I'm concerned, you've been carrying this torch of business-driven PMO for a long time, and I am so grateful for all that you've done to shape this conversation for the industry and change the mindsets people have around PMO and the impact that it can make. So thank you so much for being here today, Mark. Thank you. And please have me back for your 100th anniversary episode. <laughs> you got it. All right, Mark. Have a wonderful day. Thank you all of you impact drivers for being a part of our show. Don't forget to sign up for the PMO Impact Summit at PMOImpactSummit.com so that you can see Mark's full presentation on nudging organizational change and business agility. And you can even grab last year's sessions as well if you'd like so that you can check out all that Mark has to say as well as 39 other presentations all about how to make a big impact with the PMO. All right, that's all for today, guys. Thank you so much for being here. And don't forget, this episode is sponsored by the PMO Impact Summit, your free live virtual event covering all things PMO. There is no other event quite like this so focused on helping you make a big impact with your PMO. Make sure to go to PMOImpactSummit.com and register today. I can't wait to see you there.